We're going to turn into Ephesians today. Um, and I encourage you guys, if you guys don't bring your Bibles to bring them, it's so good to be able to dig into the Word yourself to know, hey, exactly where in the Bible is this and be able to read it for yourself. As you guys are turning there, I have a few stories to share with you. These are not my stories, um, but I'm going to say I because I didn't want to translate them to the third person. <laughs> so I'm going to share them, but they're not my stories. Um, and so here's the first one. It says, today... I have been a counselor for foster care children for almost 15 years. This afternoon, I ran into one of my previous foster children I hadn't seen in over five years. About 10 years ago, on a day he was really upset and mad at life, I drew him a sketch of a superhero and wrote him a note on an index card about how he's a superhero and that superheroes always rise up and win in the end. I saw him today as I walked past the local fire station, and he's now a firefighter. He recognized me as I walked by and ran up to me. And we talked for about an hour and a half, about half an hour. And then before we parted ways, he took his wallet out of his pocket and pulled out the superhero index I made for him when he was a kid. Another story says, today it's been 10 years since my best friend became ill and needed a kidney transplant. As I was fighting, as I was a fitting donor, I chose to donate one of my healthy kidneys to her, even after the doctor said her chance of survival was only 30% and that there would be inherent risks to my health as well. But here I am at 10 a.m. getting ready to drive her, drive to her wedding venue, where in just a few short hours, I will be her maid of honor as she marries the love of her life she happened to meet at the hospital 10 years ago. And one last story says, today, almost five years after I stopped volunteering at the suicide prevention hotline, the new manager gave me a call. She said this afternoon they received a $25,000 anonymous donation to help fund the support line. Along with the donation, they received an email that read, Thank you, Claire. You saved my life. Apparently, I'm the only Claire who ever volunteered there. What do all these stories have in common? They move the heart. I mean, I was crying as I was reading these. They move the heart. But all these stories, what they have in common is they have someone who sacrificed, who cared, who followed through to help someone else be free, be healed, and be unlocked, to live the life that God has for them. I think that when you, when you think about crisis, um, sometimes it's hard to face. But every crisis is an opportunity. And in all of these stories, I, I think I was so moved because what could have been a terrible situation, someone took the opportunity and they thought, what is my part to play in that? And then they moved. And then we see beautiful results of that. They turned a crisis into an opportunity and they served using the gifts that they have within them. So today I want to continue our series. It's called The Gifts of Jesus. The Gifts of Jesus. Pastor Daniel, a couple weeks ago, he started talking about Ephesians 4 and what Jesus did and how he distributed gifts to men. And so Ephesians 4, 7 through 11 says this, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I know, that's a lot of up and down. But Pastor Deanna kind of talked about it a little bit, the importance of him coming down from heaven, going down, getting the captives that were in captivity, bringing them up, distributing the gifts. So if you guys need to listen to that message, go ahead a couple weeks and you guys can hear it. It was really powerful. But then he says, and then he himself, after he did all that, he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, 
some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. See, when Paul was writing Ephesians, he was writing to the Ephesus church, and in the first chapters, one through three, he dug deep into what God did for them. He talked about how, how um, there was, the, that he, you know, created the world and that he created every person before the creation even happened that, to be holy and blameless. And then he talked about the redemption of the, through the blood of Jesus. And then he talked about how he wants to lavish us with all wisdom and understanding and pour spiritual blessings on us. And then he continues on, he talks about how we're made alive in Christ, And then he talks about how he loves us and that love surpasses all understanding. All of that was Ephesians 1 through 3. There's so much there. And he talks about, he he drives home the point that God has done so much. And then he goes into chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 says, So therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So now that you know all of these things, now that you know the length of what God's done for you, now that you know how much God loves you and how much he wants to pour out to you, now, therefore, I encourage you, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You know, we all have a calling. That's where it comes from. You know, you hear Christians talk all the time. Well, I I'm just trying to find out what my calling is. Well, I don't really know what my calling is. And, and, and then you think like, do we all really have a calling? And I believe we do, because Paul says, look, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That means it happened before. That means that when God created you, each and every one of us has a calling. And we're supposed to walk that out with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. What's, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, we all have a calling. And in order for that calling to come to pass, I'm going to write out a little bit about how that's going to work. And the first thing that we need to know is in order for us to fulfill that calling, we've got to do it with lowliness. We got to do it with gentleness and we have to do it in unity. We have to do it in unity. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. What is saying? It's so easy. It's so easy to be a Christian and to look around and be like, well, that person's doing it this way, but we're doing it this way. Right? And so Paul is saying, look, in order for us to fulfill our calling as the church, we have to be one body. We have to be one body. We have to do it with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And so then after that, he says, but to each one of us, grace was given. And that's what we just read, that Jesus went up, he went down, he went up, he went down, he went up. So he gave himself some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. See, it's God's heart towards us that we keep that in mind and we realize, man, I want to be obedient to God's call. We don't go after God's call in order to achieve God's love. It's understanding God's love first and then saying, I am persuaded to fulfill my call. It's the goodness of God that he doesn't just say, okay, hey, you have a calling, go do it. Hey, figure it out hey, jump off the deep end, learn how to swim, good luck. Like, you just got to fulfill this thing because I called you to it. 
No, God's very, very precise. And he always has order. And when you ask him for wisdom, he not only knows the who, he knows the how, he knows the when, right? Like God's specific. He doesn't just leave us high and dry and says, go figure it out, good luck. He says, no, 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 because I want you to fulfill your calling and you have so much in you, I'm going to equip you too. I'm going to tell you exactly who, I'm going to tell you exactly how. So that's why he goes on to say, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I'm going to read it in the NLT. It says, their responsibility. So all the five different functions, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this is going to continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Do you guys think that we have gotten there yet? No. Right? And so because we have not measured up to the full and complete standard of Christ, that means that we are still operating under these gifts that the apostles and pastors and and evangelists and teachers, like those are still in operation because the saints need to be equipped because we haven't gotten there yet. And then verse 14 says, then we will no longer be immature like children. You know, God says that we should be childlike, but not childish, right? Like when I think about, when I think about Jace, I'm like, there's so many things about Jace that I'm like, I wish I was like that. I wish I was never hurt before where if you tell him something, he just believes it right away. You know, you tell him like, like, um, like if you pray over that, it'll be healed. And you know how many kids are like, okay, they have like no reservation that that's never happened before. They just believe it with their whole heart. Like that's the kind of, you know, childlike faith that we're talking about. But we don't want to be childish where I'm telling him to do something. He's like, no. And he has like a meltdown. We don't want to be that kind of children. So we want to be childlike, but not childish. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to kick us with lies. So clever, they sound like the truth. This is very interesting that he, he talks about this. Because even back then, there were a lot of teachers that rose up, right? After Paul and all of the apostles, there was a lot of teachers that came in. And, and there was a lot of new doctrine and new teachings. In it, and people were swayed left and right. You know that in this generation, it's even worse. And so it was bad back then where Paul had to address it. But even in today's world, where we have podcasts, we have the internet, you have the TV, you have live stream, you have, you have any teacher you can possibly want to listen to at your fingertips. I mean, there is so much stuff out there. So much stuff. I'm always surprised when I hear um, different doctrines. <laughs> I always like ask Scott, like, you know that that people believe that there is no hell? I'm, like, always surprised by that. Or, like, you know, Christian people who, who teach the Bible that teach that there is no hell, or, or people who teach that there is no Satan, or people who teach that you can be, uh, if you're a saint, if you're saved, you don't sin. And I'm like, wow, these teachings are out there. These teachings are out there. And Paul is saying, look, there's going to be doctrines that come left and right. You're going to be tossed to and fro. And in order to not do that, that's why Jesus came and he gave the gifts, gave the gifts of apostles, 
prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 15, it says, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I think it's so interesting that we have so many teachers now. And I say teachers and not pastors because I think there is a difference. Like, you can have a lot of different teachers, right? Throughout school, we've had a lot of different teachers. You graduate from one, one grade to another, but you can only have one father. Is that right? Like, you can only have one father. And I think it's really interesting that along with that, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have one spiritual father. I have become your father in Christ Jesus when I preach the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. I think sometimes we can confuse um, the function of teachers in our lives. And we can think that as long as I'm sitting and hearing teaching and I'm, I am um, taking in knowledge, that that's good enough. But Paul's very clear that that's not enough. He says not only do we need teachers, we also need pastors. You also need a spiritual father. You also need someone who's going to be with you till the end. You also need someone that's going to come alongside you and encourage you personally to know what's happening in and out of your life, to know what scriptures to bring to you and say, hey, what about this? To personalize it, to walk, to counsel, right? A lot of times I think um, because we have access to so many different teachings out there that we don't, we're not, um, we're not intentional to sit under one pastor. I think because we have so many options. That's why sometimes I hear people are like, oh yeah, like I go to church. Like that's great. Where do you go to church? Elevation. Here in Kalamazoo? Like you go to Elevation here in Kalamazoo? Like, I didn't know they had a church campus here. Oh, they don't. I listen to it in my living room. And I'm like, that's awesome. I love their teachings. Like, it's so good. But who's your pastor? Who, who is going to come alongside you and counsel you on your life? Who, who is going to come and, and, and call you out on stuff? Who, who's your spiritual father? And Paul is very clear about how important that is. Because without that, we get tossed to and fro. Without that, we can still be childish in our walk with the Lord. You think about a plant, you know, um, a plant that's rooted and then they uproot to go listen to something else and then they uproot to go listen to something else and they go uproot and they're like, oh, I, this sounds good too. And they uproot and they're like, oh, that's, I've never heard that before. Let me, let me root there. And do you think that that plant's going to be really well nourished? Do you think that plant's going to be able to live to its fullest potential? I think it's important to know and ask the Lord, where should I be planted? I can have a ton of teachers. Paul says you can have 10,000 teachers. But who is your spiritual father? Who are you sitting under? Where are you going to plant 
deep. Sometimes I have people talk to me about how, man, I just don't feel like I'm growing where I'm at. And that may be very true. And that happens to all of us, I think, in ministry. That you get to a place where you're like, I just, like, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know how. And then this, you, a lot of times, uh, the first reaction that we have is, maybe this isn't the place for me. And I really challenge myself and all of us that maybe the first question should be, are you digging deep enough? Because if we have taken the time to ask the Lord, this is where I'm supposed to be planted. If this is where God has called me to be. Then I think when you ask that and you have your answer, then you go before the Lord and says, okay, well, what is my responsibility? What am I doing or not doing? Because if this is where I'm supposed to be, then I'm missing it somewhere. Am I planted deep enough? Am I digging deep enough? Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's not just teaching. That's why I have a hard time when people tell me, you know, I just stay at home and I listen to teachings all day, and I think that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with listening to teachings all day long. But when I look at the scripture, in order for us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, we can't just have teaching. We also have to be rebuked, we have to be corrected, and we have to be trained. We have to be rebuked, we have to be corrected, we have to be trained. And that's hard. Nobody in here, let's be honest, nobody in here likes to be corrected. I think, I mean, if you do, please come pray for me. Because I don't. I'll tell you right now. And we can say, like, oh, it's my upbringing. I tell Scott all the time, like, so, so this is what's so beautiful about Scott and I. Scott grew up in, this, in a beautiful, wonderful home where it was okay to make mistakes. Mistakes were not seen as, like, failures. Mistakes were just opportunities to grow. Okay. That's beautiful. Um, that did not happen to my family. When you make a mistake, you failed, okay? Like, you, you should not have. You, you should have known. I mean, those were the things that were said to me. It was not okay to make mistakes. And so when, when I'm in a place where someone's bringing, like, a, a correction, which is not bad. Correction itself is not bad. Correction is opportunities to grow. In my heart of hearts, I am dying on the inside, I'm like, this is the worst. I, I am terrible. I'm a terrible person. I failed that person. I didn't do that right. I should have. I could have. Like, that's how I internalize it. And so, so correction is hard. It's hard. We're in a society where a lot of times it's not okay to make a mistake. Like, we have to just be perfect all the time. Right? We have to, on social media, we got to look good. We got to sound good. We got to smell good. I mean, I can't even smell like throw up, even if my kid like threw up on me five minutes before. You know, that's, that's the pressure of this generation. And I'm telling you, uh, if we don't correct our perspective, we will never be fully equipped. If we don't go back and we realize the lies that come in when someone wants to point something out to you, we will never be fully equipped. We will always be held back. 
I have to get to a place where I have to be not just okay with correction. I have to welcome it. I have to welcome it. And so, you know, Scott's amazing because he, um, he's a teacher in his heart of hearts. And there's a lot of things he teaches me. <laughs> it's really hard to receive sometimes. <laughs> you guys, if you're married, you know that, right? Like, come on, everybody who's married, you're like, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. But his intentions, I have to remind myself, his intentions is not to point out that I'm a failure. It's to see me released. And when we have a healthy environment where the leadership is healthy, we can trust it and say, I welcome, I welcome your correction. I I actually want it because I want to be fully equipped. I want to be unlocked. I don't want to stay where I'm at. I want to move forward. I want to go faith to faith. I want to see everything that God has put in me come to pass. And so, I think sometimes it's really easy to focus on all the things that's not and then not celebrate the things that we're becoming. And when we talk about being rebuked, corrected, and trained, part of that is celebrating the things that we're becoming. Who are you becoming? Why can we open, have open arms to receive correction? It's because of who we're becoming. So Ephesians 4, going back to that, the responsibility of prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown away by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Who is the head of his body? The church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You think about how the whole body fits together and works perfectly together. All right, we talk about this a lot. Like, like it's so important to know, you know, if you're a hand, the full potential of your hand. If you're a foot, the full potential of your foot. But, you know, it's not just about knowing your function. Because if my hand was coming out of my head, there would be something wrong. It's not just knowing exactly what your function is. It's knowing where you're placed in the body. So it's not just knowing I'm a hand, but it's knowing that your hand is an extension of your arm, which is an extension of your torso. And when we realize not just our function, but where we fit in the body... That's when things work perfectly together, and that's when we really move forward. Um, So sometimes I think we, when we talk about calling, we talk about what is my calling? What am I called to do? What is my purpose, and um, what, what am I going to accomplish in this lifetime? Which I think is very important. I think equally as important, though, is to know exactly where you fit in 
the body of Christ. Because if my arm fully functional, totally, you know, like full potential, but it's disconnected from my torso, how good is that hand? It's not very good. It's not very good. And sometimes we can look at the body and be like, oh, well, like that one is more desirable than the other, right? Like you can look at a teacher and be like, well, being a teacher is more desirable than being an usher. We love ushers, Wayne. But we forget that that is so not how the kingdom of God works. Instead, the kingdom of God works like this. It says, um, 1 Corinthians, it says this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. As the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts needed no special treatment. What does it say? Can you imagine, can you imagine if the hand who actually does so much of the work right? It's the one who grasps. It's the one that types. It's the one that waves. I mean, there's so much that happens with the hand, but without the heart, you're dead. And which one do you see? You see the hand and not the heart, right? There are some of us in here who are hearts looking to the hand, wishing it was a hand, but without you, we'd be dead. So when we look at the body of Christ, it is a temptation, to look at the things that are presentable and say, I want to be that, and the things not presentable and say, I don't want to be that. But God is saying, look, look, all of the body, knowing their function and where they're placed, that's how the body works together. It fits perfectly together. One is not higher than the other. We all have functions. We all have our own functions. And they're all equally important. Because the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the heart, I don't need you. Right? I'm going to give you an example of this in the Bible. Acts 6. It's a story about when the church first um, started to rise up and multiply and uh, get established. And it says this, now in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So back then, the church was first started, uh, was getting started first, and, and they, were mul- I mean, they were just multiplying and growing. And can you imagine the administration behind that, right? Like keeping track of everybody as they come to know the Lord. And so they had some things that they were working on, and there was one complaint that rose up, and it was that the Hebrews and the Hellenist widows, um, one, of, one group was not getting the daily distribution from the temple. Um, and all that means is the, the Hebrew the Hebrews were those Jews more inclined to embrace Jewish culture, and the Hellenists were the Jews that were more in, inclined to embrace the Greek culture at that time. So that's the difference. But the, both, both the groups love the Lord. They both followed Jesus and his teachings. And so it's not that. It was just that it was a cultural difference. But um, regardless of that, 
they, one of them was getting the daily distributions as widows, and one of them was not. And so they brought it to the elders, you know, they brought it to the apostles. And, uh, and I think it's interesting because it is important that there are certain problems in our society, in our community, that are important to take care of. But what's interesting to me is that the apostles said, um, hey, that is important, but um, I can't do it. Right? They're saying, I can't do it. Not because I don't want to do it. But it's not desirable, meaning that in order for me to do it, it's going to take away from the praying and the ministering of the word. Which, as an apostle, the function of an apostle is to pray and minister the word. And so it's not out of, it's not saying, Paul's not saying like, oh, I don't want to do that, that's beneath me. He's saying that the sacrifice that it's going to take in order for me to administer the goods to the widows is going to take away from my number one priority, which is really important. The other thing that's important is serving tables. It doesn't just, it doesn't necessarily mean like as a waiter. At that time, serving tables to the, to the widows really means the administration of the finances. How do we divvy up the finances in order to take care of the widows? It was an administration task. And so for them to focus on their function and also solve the problem, what did they do? They uh, asked everybody, hey, from among you, seek out men. And what's interesting is it's not just men. He says, seek out seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So sometimes we can look at different roles and be like, oh, just put somebody in that role. It needs to be filled. Right? But the apostles are saying, oh, no, no, no. Every function within the church, every function is important. And it needs to be people that are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit for every function of the church because they're all equally important. It's not that this is more important than the other. It's that both are needed. And so then they go on. Acts 6 says this. So when they said that, hey, let's raise up these guys, they said the saying pleased the whole multitude. Yeah, that sounds right. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a bunch of names that I can't read, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Do you guys see how important this is? That the role of administering goods to widows was not just something like, hey, it needs to be filled. Let's just bring that guy right there. Yeah. Oh, you, can you count money? Okay. It was, it was looking to the crowds and being like, let's raise up men that are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Let's lay our hands on them because this role is just as important. And then what's interesting, what I love is that what happens after that. It says this, then, after they did that, after they laid hands on them, then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, so great that many of the priests were obedient to the faith. See, when we understand not just our function, but where we fit in the body, that's when the word of God spreads, and disciples are multiplied greatly. And so great 
It's so great that it even has um, political pull. That the influence of the church is so great when we operate together in unity that it doesn't just affect our society and the people around us. It has a political pull. It goes on to say this, and then Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Who is Stephen? Who is this guy? Some Joe Schmo that just, we just pulled from the street and said, hey, you can count money, let's do this. See, when Stephen understood, I know, I can't, I can't help but look at Stephen over there. Hey, when Stephen understood his function, he understood that it wasn't just administering to the widows. He understand full well that, that included in that was ministering to the people around him. And that from, from being able to know what his gifts are and functioning in those gifts, full of faith and power, he did great wonders and signs among the people. And it goes on, and you can even debate that Stephen might have been more influential in his preaching than some of the apostles. And it's so interesting to me that when we realize our function, it's not a limitation. It's not a limitation. It's actually the foundation we're supposed to stand on. Psalm 133, I'm going to end with this. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garment. It's like the dew of of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When we dwell together in unity, when we understand our function and where we're supposed to, uh, where we're supposed to function, when we come together and we're perfectly placed together and in unity, God says that that is where he commands the blessing. And when the oil runs down from the head, It's the same anointing oil that runs to the rest of the body. It's not just reserved for the head. The power of God doesn't just stop here. It runs to the rest of the body. The same power of God that goes and does signs and wonders through Paul is the same anointing that runs down to Stephen when he's serving the widows. And so... When we dwell together in unity, when we stop looking to the hand and saying, I wish I was the hand, I wish I was the foot, I wish I was the heart, I wish I was the brains. When we realize what is our function and where, where, do, we, where do we land on the body and we come together, <laughs> I love this, God commands the blessing there. That means that even things that were not, that, that are desert land, when we dwell together in unity, God still commands the blessing there. Even when, even when we look at what's happening around us and we're like, I don't know how this is going to work. When we dwell together in unity, God still commands the blessing there. It is more important for us to be together in unity than to just think that we're right and operate on our own thing. Even if you're right. Even if you're right.